Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Tyler October kicked off with a big event on the American Shoreline, and not a good one. The Huntington Beach oil spill occurred on Friday, we believe, uh, October 1st. A spill of 140,000 gallons is estimated of crude oil, about 3,000 to 3,400 barrels of crude oil, that leaked from a pipeline that runs 17.7 miles offshore of Huntington Beach, California, bringing oil production from wells offshore to a production facility in Long Beach, California. Uh, the pipeline is owned and operated by Amplify Energy of Houston, Texas. And uh, the spill cause is still under investigation, but it appears at this point that there's interest in whether ships that are anchored off of the port of Long Beach and L.A. perhaps dragged an anchor across the top of this pipeline and ruptured it. That hasn't been fully determined at this point, but that's what happened this uh, to kick off the month of October. Major news, and when you are in the business of coastal news and a uh, major oil spill occurs... Uh, it immediately shoots to the top of our news feed. And we, of course, ran uh, two Mondays ago, uh, for those of you listening, we ran as our top story this uh, the occurrence of this uh, oil spill. And there has been, to the, to the uh, uh, credit of the Los Angeles Times and some other local uh, outlets, there has been some really good journalism. But if you've been following along on CNN or television or you know, internet little clips, you probably haven't learned all that much. Turns out uh, these oil spills are incredibly complicated. There's a lot going on. There's a process and there are quite a few more of them than maybe we know about these spills. Yeah. Uh, the headline that I saw was massive oil spill off the West Coast. That's why the way this was branded. You know, this yeah. is the social media era, Peter. Yeah. Got to chase the clicks. That massive a, oil spill. That's clickbait. I mean, and, and Tyler and I, we, we, this is a significant event. It has real meaning economically. This is a highly visited tourist area. Uh, it's ecologically important. So we don't want to downplay it. However... The word massive bothered me. I think it's an overstatement. The BP spill, in comparison, 4.9 million barrels released, about 210 million gallons. This is a spill of about 3,000 to 3,400 barrels, so it's a smidgen. Now, it is a nearshore spill, which is very different from the BP spill. I mean, that was a lot of deep water deposition of oil. We had a great show with Dr. Paul Montagna from... Uh, the Heart Research Institute talking about the fate of oil on the sea floor and how it weathered and interacted with the environment. This spill, though, is a beach and shoreline spill with some marsh and uh, habitat involved. So it's a completely kind of different thing. I mean, although there was plenty of marsh spill, believe me, in the BP thing. But this is a different deal. But it does matter. I, I, that's what I'm trying to say. Absolutely. I, wanna, I don't want to downplay Absolutely. It. And we have a great guest today to talk about some of the biological and ecological impacts specifically that we might be uh, encountering here on the beaches of Southern California based on past experience. We do. Uh, we're so pleased to have Dr. Karen Martin join us on the American Shoreline podcast. Dr. Martin is the chair of the board of the Beach Ecology Coalition, a California nonprofit that focuses, as you might guess, on beach ecology. Uh, she is also a professor of marine biology at Pepperdine University, and she is the author of a 2015 book called Beach Spawning Fishes Reproduction in an Endangered Ecosystem. She's a real expert on beach ecology, and, so, uh, and she has also had great experience in working on spills, and particularly the 2015 Refugio spill up in Northern California. I guess that's the Bay Area, Tyler? A little bit south of that. We're little. talking a little north of Santa Barbara. Still okay. Okay. Central Coast, Central Coast, South Central Coast is what I would say. And she was a contributing writer on the damage assessment and restoration plan that was developed out of that 2015 spill. It was a 140,000 gallon spill. This spill that we're talking about is very similar in size. And the uh, the final NERDA damage assessment settlement was just reached in October. So five years, Tyler, after Refugio spill, the government settled with the uh, 
responsible parties. And I think what I'm looking forward to here is hearing how that process went, what we might expect to see happen with respect to the uh, Huntington's oil spill that just occurred and learning some things about the fate of oil on the beach and its impact on the biology. I think it's, we couldn't have found a better guest. Absolutely. Looking forward to diving in, but first, a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at lja.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Well, Dr. Karen Martin, uh, welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Well, Dr. Martin, uh, let's start learning a little bit about you. How did you become a distinguished professor at Pepperdine University <laughs> teaching marine biology and doing all this cool work around California? Um, that's an interesting question. I actually grew up in Oklahoma, which is about as far away from a beach as you can get in the United States. But I came out to UCLA for a PhD and started working on fish, um, in particular tide pool fishes at that time. It was fascinating work. I did a, a finished my doctorate there and went to University of Washington at Friday Harbor Laboratories and worked on um, some subtidal and intertidal fishes there. And then I was really interested in fish that can come out of water, uh, fish that can breathe air. And so people in California, of course, when you start talking about fish that come out of water, they say, well, what about the grunion? The grunion is that fish that comes out of water onto beaches to spawn. What about them? And at that time, I just, I couldn't put it into my research area. It was, it was too much, but uh, once I got tenure, I had the freedom to be able to change gears a little bit. And I started working on this wonderful, fascinating California icon, the surfing fish, the California grunion. Give us the quick elevator pitch of why, uh, the, why, what attracted you to this area of research? Why is this interesting? Well, the California grunion, for, for those of you who don't know about it, um, is one of the most unusual fish in the world for several reasons. One, it, it's only found in Southern California and actually is moving a little bit into Central and Northern California, but traditionally has only been found in Southern California. And it lives in the water like a regular fish most of its life, but when it's time for it to reproduce, they actually come up onto shore. They actually come to beaches in the middle of the night on high tides and come out of the water from the waves, lay their eggs on the beaches, and then return back to the water, leaving their eggs high and dry until the next following high tide um, washes them back out and they start their life again. And can, can you, why do they do that? <laughs> what is the evolutionary <laughs> advantage of that, of that I mean, it's, method? It's a, it's a lot of fun for people on dates to go and watch those for one thing. Yeah, that's but true. That's probably not why it first started out. We think it's a it's actually parental care. It's actually the parents taking care of their offspring by putting them in an environment where they'll have a little bit warmer um, temperatures. They'll have plenty of oxygen because the sand is coarse and the oxygen gets through it really easily. And uh, they'll be away from any aquatic predators. So it's good care for the eggs. What a great place to start. I have to admit, uh, uh, Dr. Martin, I was a marine biology major at Texas A&M University, just an undergraduate before I went off to law school. But uh, I loved marine biology. There were, I, what I learned is there were a bunch of people who were so much smarter than me. I, I, I really had to find something else to do. <laughs> but I loved it. And I, I wanted to learn, if you don't mind, uh, you are the chairman of the board uh, of the Beach Ecology Coalition. Introduce us to that organization and what your uh, purpose is. That's an organization that started about uh, 15 years ago or so. Um, 
we were working with with beach managers because there was a concern about what was happening to the eggs while they're out on the beaches. The eggs that the grunion lay are on the same beaches that are really important tourist beaches in San Diego, in Orange County, in Los Angeles County, all the way up to Santa Barbara County. Um, the same beaches that you would go to for surfing or for a day at the beach, and they are also there at the same time of year when their crowds are mostly there, which is the spring and summer months. And so there was a concern about what was happening um, in terms of the way the beaches were being managed, whether or not that was harming the grunion eggs. There's a, a method of raking up kelp and raking up trash that uh, really disturbs the top layer of the sand. And so we were um, invited to do a study to look at that and found out that there were ways to do that that would be less harmful got the manager's uh, cooperation and changed the way that was done. And then our manager, Dennis Simmons, was the beach manager in San Diego at that time. And he had some connections in other cities, cities and counties. And he said, you know, this is really not that hard for us to make this change. We think other people should be doing the same thing. We should get together and talk about things we can do better to protect the, uh, the animals and the plants that require the beach for part of their life cycle. And so that was really the start of it was he had this idea that we should be talking to more people than just each other. <laughs> we were really fortunate to be able to get involved with um, lots of different agencies, lots of different environmental organizations, um, maintenance workers, scientists, environmental, uh, you know, NGOs like Surfrider Foundation, um, lifeguards, and just everybody that was interested in trying to protect the beaches to make them better for the wildlife, but also uh, better for humans. Now, uh, I have I have one more Grunion-esque question, and I promise, ladies and gentlemen, this does tie in to the subject of the oil spill. But, uh, you know, I have, I, you alluded to my one unsuccessful Grunion fishing trip. <laughs> and, uh, ladies and gentlemen, it was, uh, it was, I was in high school, and uh, I was out with a lovely girlfriend of mine at the time, and we had a little bucket of beer uh, that uh, I was, you know, my strategy was basically to drink the bucket of beer and then use the bucket to put the grunion in. <laughs> but of course, I, I had a few beers and uh, I fell asleep and it just, you know, I, I, I didn't have the endurance into the night to, uh, to, to, to actually catch any grunion. So, so maybe you can help educate me, Karen. How does a grunion, how, how do you fish grunion? You know, I, I know that people do it. Is it, have, have you done it and, and how is it done? So when people collect the grunion, um, it, because it's out of water, it's very vulnerable. And most fish out of water, you know, are pretty helpless. They, they move around a bit, but they certainly are not as um, able to escape a predator as they would be in the water. And so California, almost 100 years ago in 1927, passed some regulations to protect them. When they were out of water, they were concerned even back then about overharvest. So they, people can only use their bare hands. You can't use any gear at all. If you're over the age of 16, you need to have a fishing license. And um, there's only a certain time of the year that you can actually catch them. There's a closed season in April and May. We're trying to get that extended into June as well. Um, and so they're left alone at that point. And that's actually the best time to go watch the runs because they're not being disturbed at that time. So you can actually see the, the run build and to see lots and lots of fish on shore rather than seeing them being chased away by people trying to catch them. Is the population healthy in California? The population of Grunion? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yes. We, yes. We, oh. yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, the population I know of the people, people are. Healthy, they're, but... they're very, you know, people are, yeah, they do they're, a lot of surfers are, out I'm there. Sure, they're very, I'm sure very fit, the Californians. But the, the fish, how is the fish population? <laughs> right. I'm sure there's quite a few more Californians than there are fish, um, Grunion. So what, what we think is that uh, the Grunion population has been declining somewhat over the past two decades or so. I work with citizen scientists. I work with the community scientists, um, people that volunteer to go out on the beach during times when we expect a grunion run may occur. And um, they report back what they see, if hmm. they see a small or a large or no fish or lots of fish. And so we get pretty good data um, from a lot of different places every year. And looking at our data, it looks like they have been declining a bit um, over the past uh, 20 years, which is why we're trying to get the regulations um, for see. protecting them a little bit more. 
I got to say thank you for walking us through that. And I think, Tyler, thank you for exploring this because it's important for the, we want the audience to understand where you're coming from, your level of expertise. And clearly a, a person who works deeply on beach ecology issues in California, uh, we want to turn our attention to this Huntington Beach spill, uh, which is currently being cleaned up at the moment that we're recording this. It is by uh, a ways from being resolved. Uh, can you talk to us, uh, Dr. Martin, about just a general overview of what goes on in an oil spill, what causes it, what happens to the oil? Can you teach us something about, uh, about oil spills and beaches? Sure. Um, there's, this is a big, this is a big problem. It's, it happens on a regular basis and, um, it, it is very, um, upsetting to the public. It makes people very concerned and, and very, uh, active about wanting to do something. So I think it's really important to think about, um, you know, big sort of general overview, the causes of the oil spills in general, um, would be things like a pipeline break. As you mentioned, that's what we think is this one is the result of a pipeline break. Same thing was true in Refugio. Um, the Santa Barbara spill that happened about um, 1989 was also a, a pipeline break from one of the offshore platforms. So that's one major source of um, oil spill um, that's resulting from offshore oil drilling. The ship accidents is another. You can have ships such as a tanker that that runs aground or has some kind of accident that opens up the hull. The Exxon Valdez is an example of that. Um, the American trader spill that happened really in the same place, Huntington Beach, um, in 1990 was another example of, a, of an accident that ripped open the hull and spilled a lot of oil. Um, the Another type of, of spill is caused by a, a problem in the well itself, and the Deepwater Horizon was an example of that that you mentioned earlier, the BP spill in the Gulf of Mexico. That was the largest spill ever in um, American waters, and it was ginormous, as you said. Yes. Um, this one was also included uh, an explosion. People were killed. Uh, there were fires. There was all kinds of other stuff going on. Besides the oil polluting the water, there was also this, you know, smoke, really thick, horrible smoke going off into the air while the fire was still burning. And that one was really hard to cap. That one took a long time to Did close indeed. down. So that was a sort of a worst case, really bad scenario. Um, another example in the Gulf War, you may remember Saddam Hussein ordered the bombing of oil wells that were offshore in the, in the Gulf. Um, and that, again, created fires as well as the spills of the oil in a sensitive habitat area near coral reefs. Um, and then the next one that people sometimes mention is natural seeps. We, of course, if there's oil underground, there's going to be oil that seeps out from time to time. And if you walk on beaches in California, you will occasionally come across little tar balls um, as you walk on the beach. The natural seeps generally occur at really small volumes and they're at very, very slow rates. And so they dissipate much more naturally. And it's not something that's going to coat an animal or going to cause a lot of problem in the environment because they're just really small amounts. Um, and in fact, in the in the olden days, back in the day, the indigenous people used to collect these tar balls and use them to seal up their canoes to make them waterproof when they were going to take a trip out to Catalina. Interesting. You know, I think one of the things I, I had the pleasure of going out to Southern California to Tyler's uh, uh, family's beach house in Ventura. And on the coffee table was the history of Ventura County. And in looking through the book, uh, came across the 1920s photographs of the oil wells that were all the way down to the beach in Ventura County. Uh, you're from Oklahoma and we are in mm -hmm. Texas. We're in states that are well-known to be oil-producing states. A lot of people don't know that Southern California specifically is a major oil production area and has been for quite a while. It uh, definitely has been. And if you look at um, some of the historical photos, even of Long Beach and um, even, you know, just sort of the coast of, of Los Angeles County, you can see those oil wells were just everywhere. They were just everywhere. Yeah, uh, you know, it is fascinating. And I have to say, growing up in Southern California, it was post big oil being the dominant thing. So being, you know, the good young American I was, I was just thinking about the future and oil was ancient history. But 
uh, <laughs> now that this uh, spill has occurred, I go back and I look at uh, Google Maps. And, and by the way, Peter, uh, we did a show. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, go back into the archives here of the American Shoreline podcast. We did a show on the history of offshore drilling of oil and gas. And it is a fascinating history that goes back, you know, the first offshore drilling in America was inland, was on a lake in Pennsylvania. Just just letting you know. Great old show. But uh, if you go onto Google Maps and you look at the Southern California coast, there is a lot of offshore oil infrastructure. It is not just the big offshore platforms, though those are out there. There's also islands in the harbor and offshore that were built specifically to house and and be a platform for offshore uh, oil and gas extraction equipment and and facilities. So it is a complicated thing. And what I realized, Peter, and this will I'm going to move on, ladies and gentlemen, I promise I just want to when we were driving back from ASBPA and we were driving through this energy area right there by the Mississippi River yes. uh, coming into Houston and we're passing by these massive uh, refining facilities. Yep, Lake Charles. Lake Charles area and, and coming into Houston. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just, it looks like a tube city. It's just tubes everywhere. And coming into those facilities and I'm sure in some cases leaving them are pipelines the pipelines go everywhere they connect this modern world of ours and uh i just want to emphasize this because i think that people don't realize that this infrastructure is there it's hidden it's in the case of an offshore pipeline it's on the bottom of the freaking ocean people just are not conscientious of the fact of this uh infrastructure that they can't see Dr. Martin, I'm sorry, I just had to get all that out. But uh, first of all, do, no, you, do you care I mean, to comment on, on any of that? Uh, and, and then I do want to ask you about actually Huntington Beach and, and if you could tell us about the area. I have never actually been there. Oh, Huntington Beach is beautiful. But um, speaking about the offshore oil, um, as you say, this has been there. they've been there for a while and every oil uh, well has a lifespan. And so it may be that we're getting to the point where we can say enough of that. We need to find a different way to to fuel our economy and to move oil around. But yeah, it's a physical object. It has to move across physical space. And the ocean floor, once you put something down on the ocean floor, that doesn't mean it's in a completely stable environment. There's, there's all kinds of things that can impact it there. So in the case of the Huntington Beach spill, the idea at this point is that a boat anchor may have struck the pipeline and then actually pulled it um, quite a ways and caused the rupture in the pipeline. So um, all kinds of things can happen underneath the water. Can you tell us a little bit about the shoreline that's being affected by the spill at this point? Uh, Introduce our audience, if you would, to Huntington Beach and the nature of this area that uh, it's a wide area that's being impacted, but the best you can maybe introduce our uh, listeners around the country to Southern California's beaches here. So this Huntington Beach is a is in Orange County, and Huntington Beach is a city that calls itself Surf City. It's got a very strong surf culture there. Wonderful beach-oriented um, people and businesses and tourism, and so it's a very very important part of the city and the city's identity. Um, it's also very close to Newport Beach, which is also famous for surfing and for um, a lot of tourism. And then just south of it, you have places like uh, Crystal Cove and Laguna Beach and places that are sort of the romantic ideal of a Southern California beach. So it is a really beautiful area. And in addition to the wide sandy beaches, the good recreational beaches and volleyball beaches that they have there, you also have some um, wetland areas. So we have two in particular, one is called Talbert Marsh and the other one is called the Bolsa Chica Wetlands. These are areas that are um, full of plants and full of fairly shallow water and they are responding to tides and they are really important in terms of nursery areas for fishes and for birds and for the invertebrates that live in the area. Highly developed shoreline. I'm looking at it on Google Earth. Uh, it's Yes. Densely You'd think you were looking at the Jersey Shore from a satellite. (laughs) I mean, all of Southern California is pretty well developed. The only area that doesn't have a lot of development right down to shore is the 
Marine Base at Pendleton. And it really is an area that the economy of this community is oriented to the shoreline, as you're saying, uh, Absolutely. known as a surf city. That, so the economic implications of this spill are going to be significant. But let's talk as a, as a we have the, the pleasure of having you on the show as a marine biologist and a beach ecologist. And we've talked about uh, the many ways that oil gets into the environment. What is the fate of oil when it comes onto a beach and is in the marine environment? Can you educate us a little bit about what this stuff does? So one of the issues with the oil spill is that they, you want to know about it as soon as possible and start trying to either, first of all, stop further loss of oil into the environment. And secondly, start cleaning it up as quickly as possible because it's a really complex product. And especially crude oil is um, very thick and viscous, but it changes rapidly when it's exposed to air and when it's exposed to seawater and it becomes more and more difficult to to uh, to contain and to remove as it weathers. So the other thing about crude oil in a pipeline is that it may have had chemicals added to it to make it easier to pump. Um, so with some other chemicals that are also toxic in their own ways, they may be at higher temperature than the surrounding environment. So there's multiple to forms of toxicity that are being released into the water. So at first, what people usually notice first would be a sheen on the surface of the water, just that sort of slick oil appearance, but also the odor, the really strong odor of oil. And I can tell you that that's anybody that's in the area would smell that oil. It's a very, very strong smell. Um, as time goes on, that, that obvious sheen will kind of start to dissipate, but what's going to happen is that the water gets, the oil gets uh, higher in density as it mixes with water. Oil will float on water, but then as it mixes with seawater, of course, it's going to get the, more of the constituency of the density of water, and it's going to start to sink, and it'll move around in the water column, and it'll start to uh, make it harder to scrape it up from the surface. When you look at when they try to do cleanups, what they're trying to do is get it off the surface um, as quickly as possible before it sinks, before it starts to do what you were describing for the BP spill, where it goes down to the ocean floor and then gets mobilized in various ways that way. Um, so what's going to happen is that the as the currents shift, the oil is going to move wherever the water moves. So in this case, right now, it's moving fairly southward of the spill. But ultimately, what happens is that the oil will eventually reach the shoreline. And just like when we have ocean trash and it ultimately washes up on a beach somewhere, that's what happens to the oil as well. Ultimately, it's going to reach the shoreline. And so then you want to not only get it up out of the water, but you also want to either prevent it from hitting the shoreline or clean it up once it does hit the shoreline. Really quickly, what happens when it makes, I mean, I've seen obviously pictures here uh, of, what it looks like when it hits the shoreline fresh, you know, clumped up right there in the swash zone. But okay. what is it, what are, when it sits on the beach for some time and in the waves and it churns, what, what happens to it? When it's on the beach or when it's on a rock, like an intertidal zone, if it goes into tide pools, for example, it's just going to get harder and harder. And it's, it's going to um, weather into a way that it gets more and more difficult to remove. Is what's going to happen. So um, when you see what when people are trying to clean it up off of rocks, for example, um, they're scrubbing it. They're, they've got brushes and they're scrubbing the rocks. They're holding them in their hands with gloves on and they're scrubbing them, trying to get the, get it off. Because if you don't, it, it'll become less and less possible to get it off. And so what often happens when you see them cleaning up on beaches, sandy beaches or gravel beaches, they'll just lift up the substrate along with the sand, with the um but the oil so just removing the substrate itself which of course we all know that sand is a limited resource too um and so obviously you're cleaning up the environment but you're also harming the environment it's, by it's, removing your top layer right it's just a big damn mess you there's yeah. you just cannot <laughs> ignore it no that's see there's yeah. a temptation yeah you know uh the the big ocean poseidon will just chew that stuff up who are we? Yeah. Tanya, doesn't work that way. Doesn't work that no, way. Dilution is not the solution to pollution, which <laughs> used to be said. It um, was. That um, it was, they were they were selling a, a false bill. They were indeed. Uh, you know, the thing that I'd like to better understand, I think almost everyone in the world has seen the pictures of oiled seabirds that commonly happen when these uh, marine events occur. Uh, 
and we have a, a, a sense of how that affects the animal, the ingestion, it's toxicological and can kill a lot of birds. But t talk to us about the ecological implications across the spectrum of species here, from the littlest critters, from plankton. What What is the oil... What do you expect to happen in the Huntington spill over the next year or two from a biological standpoint? Can you kind of walk us through what you might think will occur here in terms of uh, biologically? Sure. Um, we'll, we can try to, try to walk through that a bit. So the first thing that you say, I mean, our oil is a natural product, of course, but it is also highly toxic. So it is a problem if it's in large quantities in an environment that doesn't normally have it. One, one of the things about this spill is the timing of it. We are actually fortunate about the timing of this spill because it's not spring. It's not the main nesting season for most animals. It's fall. And so um, the refugio spill, the Exxon Valdez spill, these, some of the others happened in spring, which is, which is devastating because that's a really important and really vulnerable period of an animal's life cycle. A bit of good news. So that's, yeah, it's a small, small consolation there. Um, the most obvious immediate effects that people see on the news are for the marine birds and the mammals. And the reason why is because these are animals that breathe air, but they feed in water. And so they're swimming or diving right up and down through those surface waters. And that's where the oil is, of course, is at the surface. So they keep do going back and forth through that and getting coated with the oil. Um, and so once the oil gets on the feathers or their fur, that loses the waterproofing that they would be able to have. And these are warm-blooded animals, right? So these are mammals or birds like us that have internal heat production. The ocean is not warm in Southern California. It's cool. And so just like if you go swimming for too long, you start to get feel very, very cold. And an animal like you is going to lose their waterproofing and lose their heat retention. They won't be able to maintain their body temperature. And they also, as the feathers get stuck together, won't be able to fly. They may be up, not be able to swim properly. They'll have problems just getting out of the water, getting if they're a bird, or just being able to um, maintain their maintain their metabolism while they're in the water. As the animal tries to clean itself, it's going to ingest additional oil. It's going to get it into its stomach. It's going to breathe it in. If you've ever uh, been to <laughs> pumping your own gas at the gas station, you know, that there's signs that say, mm -hmm. you know, hazard, hazard, it's irritating to your uh, yeah. respiratory structure. Goodness. Yeah. What a and, mess. Right. And so same for all the animals. It's very irritating to them and it actually can be fatal if they get. Try uh, licking the fuel pump. Don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. Volatile organic compounds. That's very highly toxic, of course. Very. And if they eat it, it can cause vomiting and it can also cause liver damage if it actually gets into their system. It can cause a lot of problems with the nervous system as well. So it's very, very uh, bad. It's a toxic substance. And the animals that are taken in are usually so heavily oiled that they are not able to take care of themselves and they will not survive without without an intervention by humans. Um, so in this, in this Huntington Beach build, the um, diving birds have been brought in, including cormorants, pelicans, grebes, ducks, coots, and, and also some shorebirds, little sanderlings and snowy plovers, which are little bitty, um, you know, sandpiper type birds that are, that are eating on the shoreline. They're not diving into the water and they're just foraging in the waves and foraging in the intertidal zone. And they have oil on their feathers and on their bodies from that activity um so that's i'll the tell you it's it's a bad it's it's it, not good it's a bad look those are the cutest you know the, if it has yeah. plover in the name prepare <laughs> yourself for a, a cute bomb they are it. they are awfully cute sanderlings one of my former students called them sand darlings and uh, i was like you're not wrong they yeah. are sand darlings um, tell, tell us. Are, actually are endangered they're threatened and so that's equally even more concerning for them definitely tell us about the uh you know the the microorganisms the tiny uh plankton and whatnot how does the oil uh impact them so if you think about invertebrates, if you think about um, many kinds of plankton like copepods and also things like sand crabs and barnacles and clams and mussels that are living in the near shore or in the intertidal zone, those are filter feeders. A lot of them are filter feeders. And so they're using their gills to trap food with mucus. Of course, whatever sticks to the mucus is going to go into their bodies. And so they're going to get clogged up with the um, oil 
or with the uh, weathered oil as they try to take it in. If they survive, or even if they don't survive, they're going to accumulate that um, toxic substance in their body. So if they get eaten then into the food web by a bird or a fish or whoever else eats these critters, then that's going to accumulate in the bodies of the predator as well. And what we see is as you go up the food chain, each accumulation adds more and more to the next level. And so we have a magnification of the effect so that the ones at the highest level are going to be the ones that have the highest, the most effect as this accumulates. It doesn't get metabolized. It's not a, a substance that your body can metabolize. And so it just gets accumulated. And so once it's in the body, then it can cause nervous system problems, can cause heart problems, um, can cause uh, reproductive problems. It's stored in fat, so it's transferred in a mammal to the baby um, that might be developing in the mother, for example. Um, so again, it's you know it starts out very small, but it can accumulate and, and magnify. And um, so that's happening with the invertebrates. And then if we take that idea of um, using your gills and having mucus on the gills, that's again fishes also are breathing with gills. And so they not only can ingest or, or eat the oil, take it in that way, but they can also have it clog their gills and prevent them from breathing, really? you know, just they cover their gills. They can suffocate, essentially. That's... Basically, yeah. right. Wow. And, and the same thing about storing their toxins, if they're um, storing them in their fats, they certainly can cause problems higher in the food chain. Um, in the in the Exxon Valdez, the one of the concerns was for the salmon runs, and they were affected for for years after the spill. Um, we know that right now, the the Fish and Wildlife Department in California has closed the area of the Huntington Beach spill to fishing for the foreseeable future. Um, so that affects the fishermen as well as the fishes themselves. That uh, they don't want them to wow. to potentially be eating those animals. Um, sometimes what we see is terrestrial predators even coming out and scavenging a dead or injured animal. So like a coyote or a raccoon might see a fish that washed in on shore that was dead and they say, oh great, free food. And then they're going to carry the effects even beyond the local boundaries of the spill. That's it's, incredible. Yeah, the implications are across the trophic levels, across the ecology. Hey, that's across ecology. The, it is. This is we're talking about. We were talking about this here. earlier. We're talking about food webs and bioaccumulation to the up. I'm, that's great. This is the. Hey, truth. ladies and gentlemen, if this interests you, you might consider beefing up on your ecology. That's right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's it is it is not a fun way to learn about the marine environment to, to study oil spills, but it is fascinating. It's very interesting to see how everything is connected. Let's talk about, yeah, obviously the negative impacts uh, it, it take time. This is a persistent uh, substance oil as it weathers. Uh, the toxicity, as you say, can move up the food chain and be bioaccumulated and, and even uh, be transferred into terrestrial environments. Uh, bad stuff. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the cleanup methods? How, how, what is the right thing to do? to reduce the impacts? How should this be tackled? Well, yeah, that's a, it's a difficult thing. We have really good technology and people put a lot of faith in technology, but there's only so much technology can do. And just like, you know, having good, good boats and safe pipes and everything, and they're safe up to a point, but they don't really always work. So, um, what happens with the oil cleanup, usually there is a, a multiple agency um, organizations that come together there. It's an incident command center and then the, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration um, and the Coast Guard in the, as the federal agencies will work with state agencies in California. It's the oil spill prevention and response team, which is part of California Department of Fish and Wildlife. There's uh, private contractors that are called in that, ha that do cleanup spills constantly so there are people who are doing this all the time and have a lot of equipment to do it so there's about there's only a limited number of things that you can do the first one is containment you try to keep keep it from getting any farther away keep it enclosed and so they put out these booms which are drapes of fabric that are stretched along around a spill or along a coastline these are only a few feet high because oil is floating on the surface and it they're you know, they need relatively calm seas to really be effective because otherwise waves will just overtop them. 
um, and they made it be really very extensive. So the, the Huntington Beach spill has over two miles of booms deployed, but the shoreline is, the spill itself is much longer than that. So this is a limited thing and it's being done to protect really sensitive habitat areas like the marshes and the intertidal areas that they're trying to keep oil away from. Um, so that's first thing, try to contain it. And then secondly, try to recover it and remove it. And so um, if it's on shore, <laughs> there's a limited amount of things you can do, but we talked about them earlier, pick it up, move the substrate, just scrub it off. Um, sometimes they use really hot water, but that has its own issues for biological areas. Um, there are vessels out on the water called skimmers, and the vessels basically vacuum up the oil on the surface and store it within their tanks and then offload it to a toxic waste facility when they come into port. Um, there's an organization called the Marine Spill Response Corporation, it's MSRC, that, that's their job. That's what they do is respond to uh, oil spills and, and toxic waste spills in the marine environment. And so they have these vessels um, ready to go, and they're out there in the Huntington Beach spill as well. The problem is that the storage capacity on the vessels is fairly limited. And also when they're collecting it, the seawater is already part of it. The seawater and the oil are mixed. And so when you see approximately 140,000 gallons have been spilled, recovery so far is about 5,000 gallons. You know, yes, but some of that is seawater, right? I see. <laughs> so it's really hard to, it's really hard to match up the amount spilled with the amount that's recovered. I see, because of the mixture. Um, can you, based on your experience in, in working on the uh, refugio spill, the damage assessment and restoration plan, as I said, the spill occurred in 2015, the settlement for $22.3 million in natural resource damages was reached in October 2020, so at least about five years later. What can, can you draw from that experience and sort of paint a picture of what we might expect over the next five years in terms of the cleanup, lasting damages, if any, and what the process might be uh, of recovering damages in the Huntington spill, if you don't mind speaking to that very broad. I'm just interested in a comparison here. What can we learn from the refugio spill? I, I think... Um... We could also look at the, you know, the XMLD spill or the BP, the Deepwater Horizon spill, and to say that, you know, it's very clear that um, there is responsibility for maintaining a, a safe environment and for restoring an ecosystem when there's a disaster like this. So I think that it's it's very clear that there will be uh, some sort of restoration or some sort of recovery that damage assessment and recovery that will have to be done. What will happen in the short term is that the acute toxicity will decline. That will be happening in weeks or months. And especially because this one seems to be contained and hopefully removed more and more over the next weeks or months. Um, but, but unfortunately, if there's toxins in the animals or in the food web, we can't really do much about that. They're going to be there and they're going to continue to cause problems. If they're in sediments, for example, whatever get, would get into a marsh, you would have a very difficult time removing um, without really doing more damage by removing it. And so that may persist for a longer period of time as well. Um, one of the long-term effects of the Exxon Valdez is the, on the orcas, which is, of course are at the top of the food chain, the killer whales. And they still have not recovered, and it's been, you know, 20, almost 30 years now. Yeah, almost 30 years. Yeah. So that's, I mean, they're a long-lived animal, so hopefully they will eventually. Do you, but, do you, um, but, okay, but the other thing about it is the human uses, and we mentioned how important Huntington Beach is as a beach town, and it is a beach town. Uh, right now, the beaches are closed. They can't go there for recreation. They can't go there fishing. They can't go surfing. They can't. The harbors are closed. Can't go whale watching. Can't go boating. And so that's economic impact there as well. The businesses are losing business. The people are losing recreational op opportunities. And that is a cost. That is a, a damage that's assessed. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And so for the Refugio uh, Beach spill, that beach was closed for 57 days. And El Capitan, which is nearby, was closed for over a month. And fishing was closed for over a month as well. So I would say probably expect fairly long closures on these beaches. And that is 
that's tough. The other thing about Orange County, um, which is a wonderful place, <laughs> um, Orange County has for many years been very concerned about their marine environment and their, their nearshore environment, and they have a lot of marine reserves. Um, California in general does in many places, but Orange County in particular has many of them, more than most areas. Good, good job, and Orange it, County. I have yeah, to say, I, yeah. you know what? Seriously, give props, no, credit where absolutely. credit's due. Well done. Absolutely. And so, but what I'm saying is that there are a lot of people in Orange County who are very concerned about marine cons conservation, who have worked hard and who have actually done a lot of restoration on wetlands and restoration on habitats and education in the, in the environment. And so I would say, you know, you have a really educated public that cares a lot and so i would expect them to mm. be very vocal in what they think needs to be done i would expect the same uh dr martin do you do you anticipate or would you uh expect to be involved in the uh, damage assessment of this spill uh professionally um I was involved in the refugio spill because it happened in the springtime, and that's when Grenion are running, and they actually were running at that beach, unfortunately, during the time when there was oil actively uh, present. So that's why I was involved in that one. That's not happening. That's We're in the wrong time of the year or the right time of the year from my point of view right, right now. Um, so I won't, I won't be involved in that regard. And... If I was involved, I think I would probably not be able to talk to you about it right now. So, just a qu a <laughs> there's, a of, there's a lot of legal issues, and there's a because of the lawsuits that will be filed. There's a lot of concern about people saying things um, that may be used in court, and so I'm not. I am my my uh, disclaimer is I am not involved in this particular spill in an official way. Definitely. Now, I do, you mentioned the Grunion, and of course, I can't help myself. I'm drawn in. Um, what are Grunion doing this time of year? The, this time of year, they're, they're far offshore. They're not anywhere close by. So hopefully they're fine and they're just taking a vacation. Um, but when they were in, um, remember that I said that they nest on beaches. They lay their eggs on the sand, underneath the sand. And what happened when we collected eggs after the oil spill was we found that the eggs that had been oiled, you could see the oil, you could literally see the little rainbow thing on their egg membranes. When you looked at it under the microscope, it was it was really um, obvious. They were really active. There were some nervous system issues and we know that oil causes heart defects in fish embryos. So that was, that was, a, <laughs> that was a tough thing to see. Um, I'm, I'm grateful that that was something that people had in their, uh, you know, in their interests that they wanted to know about. Uh, but I'm actually very grateful that that's not um, a concern on this particular one at this time. So, wow. Well, there is. A, we, we are we are in week one of really about the first ten days in this spill. Uh, a long way to go in terms of even responding to the oil in the water at this moment. That's going to go on for weeks and perhaps months, uh, the assessment of the cause, and then the beginning of the long, arduous process to understand the damages, the responsible parties, uh, many years of work ahead on these spills. Uh, we really appreciate you walking us through this complicated subject and really taking us into a deeper level than uh, is available in most, uh, in most news outlets. And uh, do you have any final thoughts on this spill? Are are you an optimist about can can this can this area, uh, you know, recover and and be as beautiful and wonderful as it has been in the past? Yeah, I, I do think it's really important to think about um, this is a terrible thing that has happened and it needs to be addressed and needs to be addressed quickly and appropriately. But at the same time, it is clear that the responsible parties will be identified and will be held accountable. Um, the press is doing a really good job of covering what's happening. Um, and what we've seen is that the public responds really quickly and really actively to an environmental disaster and they don't forget. So that's a positive for helping to find ways to prevent these in the future. Um, the fact that people recognize the importance of the coastal ecosystems, not just as playgrounds, but as places where wildlife and other organisms can thrive. Um, Fortunately, beaches can recover faster than some other kinds of coastal ecosystems. So hopefully the beach will recover in, you know, the next few years. 
And um, what we've seen with the Refugio Beach lawsuits and the settlement is that the funds are going to be used for restoration projects. So they're actually going to improve some habitats that had been degraded in the in the same or similar habitats nearby. So that's the positive that comes out yeah. of this difficult situation. It absolutely is. The, uh, the restoration funds made available to the Gulf states uh, as a result of the BP Deepwater Horizon spill have really made a difference over the last uh, 20 years, and there's, uh, it's still being paid out. Right. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it is Dr. Karen Martin. She is the chair, chairman, chair of the board of the Beach Ecology Coalition. She's a professor of marine biology at Pepperdine University and uh, an beautiful Pepperdine University. Absolutely great volleyball team, isn't it? Pepperdine. Yes, great yes. and, and great, great water polo team. Is that right? Yes. Oh my yeah. lord, Terry Schroeder. I forget. Was it Terry Schroeder's the coach? Yes. <laughs> my, the legendary Terry Schroeder. Legendary. That's right. Olympian. Peter. Yes. Olympian. Pepperdine University. Dr. Martin, if folks wanted to learn more about your work and uh, and uh, keep up with you, do you have any uh, websites or? ways that they can follow you yeah one one website would be the beach ecology coalition.org it's all one word beach ecology coalition.org the other one is for the grunion um it's grunion.org or we like to call it the grunion orgy <laughs> we are there my contact info is on there and i'm happy to happy to correspond with anybody and for folks out there the book Beach Spawning Fishes Reproduction in an Endangered Ecosystem, available on, uh, at, at what we can get, we can get that at Amazon. Amazon's got it. It's available on audiobook. I think now it's in paperback. Is that right, Dr. Martin? It's a, an ebook. Yeah, an ebook, an e-book or paperback. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much for sharing your expertise and taking us uh, down the line of understanding this complicated event. Uh, hopefully, we wish everybody well in Southern California. Hopefully the cleanup goes smoothly and the least damage possible. We'll be watching it on Coastal News today. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. The beaches itself.